So this last week was a big week at the Surratt household because um, we have our oldest daughter, Sienna. She went to TK, which is pretty much just kindergarten. And it was a big week. We're prepping for it, all excited. We bought her a backpack that's like literally like her entire body. It's very cute. And I was talking to her all the week about it, like, okay, you excited? You're going to school? You're going to school? And she's like, Daddy, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous. And I'm like, oh, my little girl, you're still going to have to go, though. And so we're getting to the day, and the, the day finally arrives where we're taking her to kindergarten, and uh, it was pretty exciting. And it's funny because my daughter, she is a miniature version of my wife. Like, she looks like my wife, except just shrunken down. It is hilarious. And she, to some degree, has the same disposition as my wife. She's, she's very caring, very loving, um, can be a, a real sweetheart. And, uh, and she'll always, whenever we leave, she's got to give me a hug and a kiss goodbye. And she says, Daddy, I love you all the time. It's great. You know, it is just one of the best feelings in the world. Um, the, but there is also this other part of her in which you go, what is wrong with you? There is something where you have all of a sudden gone from being such a sweet little child to, I don't want to say possessed, but there's something in between. <laughs> and so, for example, this last week, she goes to kindergarten. Um, she comes home from the first day. It's only three hours long. Three hours long, she comes home with her shoes on the wrong feet. Weird, because my wife knows how to put her shoes on, and so something happened during school. We go back that night for, uh, for open house, and the teacher describes, without naming any names, one of the children had an issue today, and she went and proceeded to tell about how this child did not want to wear shoes, did not want to wear socks, and wanted to do what they wanted to do. And I did not know it, but at the time, um, she was talking about my daughter, because my wife leaned over and went, that's our daughter, for sure. That was ours. And in the whole three hours she was here, she already got herself in trouble. And so we tell her all the time, Sienna, you are our Sour Patch Kid. You're our Sour Patch Kid. Now, you got Sour Patch Kids on your way in. By the way, they're not communion. You can eat them whenever you want, okay? You can have them right now. And, uh, and it's those commercials. You've ever seen it where it's a giant Sour Patch Kid, and they'll do something really mean or whatever, and then they'll turn around and do something really nice, and they've kind of got these two things. They've got the sweet and the sour because the candy is sweet and sour. You get it. Okay. And so we call her our Sour Patch Kid. And I'll ask her, and this is, I did not prompt her. She came up with this on her own. I ask her all the time, Sienna, why don't you just listen to mommy and daddy and do what you're supposed to do? And she says, daddy, I know that I'm supposed to do that. In fact, I think it's a good idea, but my brain tells me to be naughty. I'm like, you're like a miniature philosopher theologian and you don't even know it. You know, like that is the problem, right? Is that's not just her problem. That is our problem as well, is there is something within us that we know what we're supposed to do. In fact, we may think it's a good idea that we should do that. But there's also this other part that says, but wouldn't it be really good not to do that? Wouldn't it be? It's better to be naughty, I think. And in fact, this is not just unique to Sienna or, or maybe you. This is something that all of humanity has struggled with. If we go back 2,000 years, we, we have this guy named Paul, the Apostle Paul. You've probably heard of him before. And if you're not a church person, not familiar with the Bible, um, Paul is a really important figure in Christianity because um, not only did he write a big chunk of the New Testament, but he planted a bunch of the first century churches. And his kind of role, not just to plant these churches and help the gospel spread, but when he wrote these letters to the church, that he planted, he took the events of Jesus' life and death and resurrection, and he kind of teased them out so that we could understand their significance. He gives us a lot of theology. 
And so Paul is writing this letter to the church in Rome. And in this, there's a lot, a lot, a lot of deep theology, like significance of what happened. Because everybody goes, okay, we saw the event of Jesus' death and resurrection, but what does it mean? And he starts to unravel what all of this means. And he wrote about this very problem 2,000 years ago. He says, I have this problem too. I am a Sour Patch Kid. And so here's what he says. In Romans 7, 15, he says, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. Okay, so the law, he's talking about God's law. He's talking about the commandments and things like that. But just for the sake of argument, let's call it any law. Let's say that it's the law of the land here in America. You could say it's the Bible as law. You could even say that the law is some moral compass that you have. Everybody has some idea of there are certain things that are right and certain things that are wrong. And we would say that there are these laws, moral laws, you know, legal laws, whatever they are, and I think that they're a really good idea. In fact, I think that they're a great idea, but there's also something inside of me that says, even though I believe it's a good idea, I'm still not going to follow it. Perfect example, texting while driving, right? I think it's a great idea not to text and drive, but there might be an occasion when I kind of do it. I hate to admit it. I hate it. I honk at people. I go, can't have the phone, right? But there's something inside of me that says, but I think I want to do it. And so the, the, the Sour Patch problem simply defined as this. I know what I should do, but I just don't do it. So can you guys say that with me? The sour patch I know what to do, but I just don't do it. Oh, you're going to have to do better than that. Okay, here we go. I know what to do, but I don't do it, right? That, that's the problem. That's all the problem that all of us have. It is the sour patch problem. Now, how do we, uh, well, it, it's interesting. While I was thinking about this, I realized that if you look into popular culture, we are pretty fascinated with the idea that there are two opposing personalities in people. Like these two sides that we see. So the obvious example is Jekyll and Hyde. You have this good person, this evil person, and they are fighting for control in one, which, you know, maybe you can relate to a little bit. It almost feels like this, there's this internal battle between two people in you that want to take control of your decisions and how you act and how you think. But if you look at almost all of our, our favorite heroes, our favorite characters, it is two personalities in one person. So a couple examples. Um, you've got Superman, Batman, Spider-Man, Incredible Hulk, TV shows like Dexter, and then, of course, Walter White from Breaking Bad. You're like, oh, I don't know what that show is. <laughs> okay, right. right. Um, or it's depicted as an angel and a devil on your shoulder. There's this idea and I think the reason why we, can, we love these characters is because we can relate to them. They are kind of extreme examples of who we are, is there are these two people inside and they're fighting for control. And so when we see these heroes or even we see these evil characters, we go, yeah, I, I, I can understand that. I can relate to that. It's true of you. It's true of Sienna. It's true of me. It didn't take me long while I was studying to think of an example of um, the sweet and sour Cody. So this week we were up in Northern California and, and we're driving back from North Carolina. It's about seven and a half hours, and I have two little kids and a pregnant wife, so driving seven and a half hours is super fun. We love it. It's a great time. <laughs> so we're driving seven and a half hours, and we are entering into L.A., and we are almost home. The finish line is near. I'm so excited. 
And then, of course, there's an accident on the freeway, and not only are, uh, are there a ton of cars that have to stop, but they have now made us go into one lane, actually it's the shoulder, and all of a single file go through this. I'm like, oh, I was hoping for more car time. And so we get there, and then I finally wait, and it's my turn, and we're going single file, and listen, I'm a sweetheart, okay? And so I decided, because I know the rules, is I am going to let a truck in front of me. We know the rules, right? Everybody knows the rules. It's you go in front of me, then that next person merges behind me, right? And here's how generous I was feeling. It was a semi-truck. That's like 12 cars in one. So I pretty much let 12 cars in front of me. Felt like a saint. And so this car is coming in front of me. I let him go. I've done my good deed for the day. Great. Except the semi-truck behind him thought, I'm going to do it too. And I went, oh, no, you're not. That's not the rule. And so I went from being this sweet, loving, caring person. Oh, come on over. Awesome. Okay, great. To how dare you. I am willing to wreck this car into the wall so that you cannot get into this lane. I was so angry. I literally, I could have knocked on his window as we were going through. And Amy's like, oh, my God. And for 20 minutes, I am fired up. I'm like, let's find out where he lives. Let's go. Let's go. You know, like, oh, I'm mad right now. And she had to calm me down for the next 20 minutes because I was so angry. And it happened in an instant. It is going from, oh, yeah, sweet, generous, kind, loving, uh uh-huh, to let's find out where he lives, and I'm going to make his life miserable because he tried to cut me off, right? that's, That's how fast things can change. It's as if there is this Cody and this other Cody and this other nasty, sour Cody pops its ugly head and it kind of startles you a little bit. It's kind of surprising. You sometimes look back and go, whoa, what happened there? I didn't, that's not, oh God, I'm a little embarrassed. In fact, most of our mistakes, we look back and we go, ooh, where did that come from? Why, who was that? Who did that? I have had those moments in which I will be saying something, I will be lying, I will be whatever, and I'll I'll be gossiping, I'll be like, why am I saying this right now, Cody? Why, where is this coming from? What is going on right now? In fact, one of those moments right now. Okay, so, anyway, um, here's the thing, is all of us have had these moments that if we're being honest, there is something that pops up and surprises us. So let me give you another uh, illustration of, I think, how this works. It's uh, six months ago. Okay, let me preface this. I am uh, becoming more and more like my father, and it's terrifying. Here's why. (laughs) It's because my entire life, I have seen my dad work on our house for 30 years or whatever. He gets a project, and he goes, you know what? We should really rip out the kitchen. And you're like, okay. He rips out the kitchen. He'll get about 80% done and go, Nah, I'm over it. And it'll just be ripped apart for the next five years or whatever. So my entire life, there has been something under construction in my home, okay, growing up. Well, I said, I'm never going to do that. That was annoying. It was always messy and dusty and, you know, whatever. Okay, so six months ago, I decided, well, we got another baby coming. And so this little tiny house that we live in, we're going to have to expand. And so I'm going to figure out how to do an addition, minor project. And, uh, and so I go and I rip it, uh, house apart, and it's going to start with just a little thing, and then it snowballs into the, here's where we ended up, is in the driveway in a travel trailer. So <laughs> I don't know if you're seeing the picture or not, but I've got two little kids, a pregnant wife, in the driveway for the last six months. Really awesome. And so 
we're living there, and uh, I promised my wife, okay, we're going to move in this last week. We're getting back in the house. It's not even close to done, but it's going to be livable. There's a roof again. And so we're getting back in the house. And so the night before we're supposed to get back in the house, um, my buddy and I, we are working. It's like 9, 30, 10 o'clock because we're working late, just trying to get this thing like somewhat livable. And we go to go get some dinner really quick. And as I'm heading out, I get a phone call from my wife, and she is hysterical at this point. And the kids are sleeping, and she was laying in bed, and she says, you know, last week, I woke you up in the middle of the night, and I said, I think I hear something. I think I hear something. In fact, I think I just saw something, and you said, ah, it's nothing. Go back to bed. It's not a big deal. Well, guess what? I was laying in bed, and that little something just ran across the bed, and it's a mouse, and it just ran over the sheets, over my legs in the bed. I'm done. Get home now. I hang up the phone, I look at my friend, I go, whoa, this is going to be interesting. Okay, here we go. So we spend the next like three hours trying to find this mouse. We get him, we think we got him cornered, and then he just, he literally disappears. We started calling him Houdini because I don't know where he is. And so I eventually give up. I go, I don't know where this mouse is. He's somewhere in this trailer. And she says, well, then we're not going to be in the trailer. We're going in the house. And so we move the kids in the middle of the night into the house, and we are now officially back in the house because... Now, uh, that mouse is still, to this very moment, in that trailer somewhere. Now, I think that this is a lot like human nature, is everything is cool, it's calm, we're reserved, we're responsible, we kind of put it together most of the time. But if we're being honest, if we are to peer into our hearts, we think that there might be something lurking in there, that there's something below the surface that makes a little rumbling sometimes. And then, in a moment, it will pop up out of nowhere, and it's startling. I just went off on my kids. Where did that come from? I can't believe that I just said that. I can't believe that I thought that. It was almost as if something took over me. It just popped up out of nowhere. See, I think that's what it is to be a human, is for the most part, we can suppress whatever that is down there. But in our most honest moments, we go, nah, there's another part. There's something else lurking in my heart. And so Paul explains it like this. He looks at his own heart. And by the way, Paul is a very religious person. He is very responsible. He follows all the commandments, but he realizes that's not all that's in there. It's not a wholesome person. And he, when he realizes this, this is what he says. He says, what a wretched man I am. He just goes, I'm a mess. I may look good on the outside, but inside, in my heart, there is a disaster in there. And all of us, we know this. We know this. We may not want to admit it, but we know this. This is why there are so many self-help books out there, because we know there's a problem and something needs fixed, and so we're going to figure out how to fix it. This is why we love motivational speakers. This is why Oprah has a ton of money. This is, this is, why, um, this is why we go to a therapist, because we know that there's something not right about us. There's something wrong internally, and we're going to figure out what it is and how we can fix it. I'm going to give you, uh, I'm going to give you Paul's explanation of why all of us are Sour Patch Kids, why there seems to be this sweet part of us, but also this sour part of us. So let me start with the sweet part, is uh, I know what I should do. I know what I should do. I find it pretty amazing, and, and maybe you've never thought about this before, that everyone in the world, all humanity, all cross time, has had this understanding of what is morally right and wrong. Now, some details may differ here and there, but for the most part, we can agree that there are certain things in the world that we should do and that we shouldn't do. So, for example, um, we all have known throughout all of, 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 of uh, mankind that we should love our kids and that we should not torture them, right? That is, the, that is universally agreed. Everybody knows that. 
How is that possible? How is it possible that all of us, it's somehow inherent, that we know what, what we should do? Well, Paul gives this explanation. In fact, it's all throughout the Bible. Paul says that the reason why we know what we should do is because God wrote his law on our heart. Even in the Old Testament, we have Jeremiah 31, 33. He says, I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. Saying, the reason why you know what you should do is because God wrote his very law on your conscience, on your soul, in your mind. Being made in his image and being like him, him being perfect, we know what it is to be perfect. We know what we should do. So I think most of us, we can agree to this, even if we're not Christians, we go, yeah, yeah, okay, most people know what to do. But here's where it gets really fun, is trying to explain the sour side of us. But why don't we do it? Here's what Paul has to say. He says in verse uh, Romans 5.12, he says, and I'm going to kind of go through this line by line because it's really thick and really important. Here's what he says. He says, this thing called sin entered into the world. Now, sin is a theological concept. You've probably heard of it before. And let me define it. Sin is this idea that um, we, as humanity, have rebelled against God that he, has, uh, he is our authority, and instead of following him, we want to be our own authority. We want to be our own God. And so instead of following his laws, we will break his laws. And so this thing called sin enters into the world, and not only does it enter into the world, but it enters into the human heart like a disease. And so he continues on. He says, sin entered the world through one man. So of course, he's going back to the Old Testament, Adam and Eve, you've probably heard of them before. Uh, God creates Adam and Eve, they're the, the first man and woman, and so all of us are in their family. We're all kind of related to them and to one another. And so when Adam and Eve decided they didn't want to follow God, but they wanted to rebel against God, this thing called sin enters into them, and it becomes a part of their nature. It's like a disease that has entered into human nature, and us being related to them now have that same human nature. We all have that disease within us. Now, when people hear this for the first time, and they think, wait, 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 so let me understand this correctly, is what you're saying is that because these people, out of me, which I don't even know if they existed or not, I'm still skeptical about that. What you're saying is those people messed up, they rebelled against God, and so now here, all, all of us have to suffer the consequences that we all, or as if we've all sinned too, which we all have, but we all have this nature. How does that make sense? How is that fair? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, let me, let me just point a couple things out. That's actually how the world works, isn't it? That's how the physical world works. Why would you think that the spiritual world would be any different? The physical world is I can inherit, inherit things from my parents that have negative consequences on my life. I think the best example and probably one of the most sobering moments in my life was when I went to Africa and I saw a child dying of AIDS. And you go, whoa, whoa, what did this kid do to deserve that? Nothing. Her mom had AIDS and now she has AIDS and she's suffering the consequences of it. That's how the physical world works. We know that. Why would we think that the spiritual world would be any different? So, it says that we inherited this sinful nature, and then he explains to us, just like when we inherit a, a debilitating or a destructive disease, you don't get to just walk away from it. You don't just say, okay, I'm not going to have AIDS anymore today, I'm done, or I'm going to try really hard, or I'm going to do better, and so I'm not going to have it anymore. He says, sin is just like that. The nature that you have, you don't just overcome it, it is something inherent to you, and so you have it, and it's permanent. In fact, it is so permanent that you become a slave to it. It starts to take over, just like a disease, it starts to take over your body and your mind, and you don't get to decide to control it. It controls you. 
He continues on and he says, unfortunately, there is a consequence. And he says, the consequence is there is death through sin or death because of sin. So he says, because they messed up and because all of us have messed up ever since, we die. Now, this applies to all areas of life. If you think about it, and you don't have to be a Christian to agree with this, if you think about it, when you mess up in an area of your life, something dies. So when you mess up financially, your finances will die. When you mess up a relationship, a relationship might die. This is true of all the aspects of our life. In fact, this can be true physically. If we mess up physically, we can die. Same is true spiritually. Because we have messed up spiritually by rejecting God, we also will die spiritually. I think uh, most people struggle with this because it sounds extreme. It's like, whoa, 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 whoa. We're talking about big consequences here. That seems a little bit harsh. I think we, don't underest- I think we underestimate the uh, goodness of God, and we overestimate our goodness. We don't really have a good picture of who we are and, and who God is. So there's this uh, philosophical concept, and uh, when you're talking about God, you think of God as, because God's kind of hard to imagine, right? Some of us have different conceptions of God. Some people say, well, you know, he's an old man with a beard and a cloud. Okay, no. Other this, I love having conversations with people where they say, you know, God is like, he's like my buddy and he like gets me, you know? He's kind of like that cool uncle where he's like, ah, oh, yeah, here's a beer, bud. <laughs> I don't have one of those, but um, all my uncles are pastors. But they kind of think like, ah, oh, God gets me. We got a relationship. He understands. He looks the other way. He's not too worried about this, whatever. But it's because they don't understand who God is. So this has helped me. Maybe it'll help you. There's this philosophical concept that God is the greatest conceivable being, meaning that if you think of properties that would make someone great, so let's say uh, love and compassion and, and care, even things like power and knowledge, those are all things that make people great. And so if you think of the maximal degree of those properties, that's who God is. So if someone had all, like maximal love, that's who God is. Or maximal power, that's who God is. And so God is the greatest conceivable being. Okay, so first let's think about that's how great God is. And then we start to think about ourselves, and we have to get a good picture of who we are. Most of us think of ourselves as pretty good person or p- people. In fact, that's the popular conception. If you were to ask, I think, the average person uh, on the street— what do you think about mankind and who are they? They would probably say that at our core, in our hearts, we are good people. We're good people. We're all pretty good people. The problem is, is that there's certain external factors that end up uh, swaying us to do wrong things. So, you know, it's a lack of education or understanding or it's improper beliefs, or it's economic inequality, maybe even uh, genetic predispositions and family of origin things, and And so if we fixed all of those things, which would be great, if we fixed all of those things, and at the same time we learn to follow our hearts and be true to ourselves, then we will become who we want to be. And in fact, uh, this last week I I overheard, I didn't watch the whole thing, but um, I overheard some of the VMAs and some of the speeches. Oh, hilarious. I love them. Because what, what they're doing is uh, they're really philosophizing, but they don't know it. They just think they're, they're just telling, you know, like truths, and they're really talking philosophy. And so one of them, they got up there, and then this is pretty common. They were talking about how, you know, you need to follow your heart, and you need to be your true self, and you guys are all snowflakes, and, and uh, whatever, okay? And, uh, and as I'm listening to this, I just go, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. I just, oh, that's so stupid. Because, like, what if you follow your heart, but, like, your heart, okay, you say to be your true self, but what if your true self sucks? Then, like, what do you do? 
you know? Because, like, I know a lot of people. Some of them suck, right? And so, like, they shouldn't follow their hearts. They shouldn't be themselves because themselves is not cool. And so, like, they should be someone better than that. And so then what do you do? And so, okay, I know I'm cynical, whatever, but let me ask you just, just this question. And we could talk about this issue all day about uh, human nature, but this question, I think, will make the point. Do you really believe that Hitler would have been a sweetheart if he had a better family, more education, and some healthy self-esteem? Do you think if he had those things, he would have been like, guys, I just want to hug. I'm not, I don't even want to hurt anybody, right? Like, I got it. I'm, we're good now. Do you think that that would have fixed whatever was wrong with Hitler? No, right? There was something inherently wrong with him. But it's not just him. He's like the ultimate example, of course, but there is something wrong with a lot of people. If we look throughout humanity, there has been evil done by every race and every class and every place and every time, and it has crossed all geographical lines. It is there's only one thing that makes sense of how evil has been done in every part of the world by every type of person, that there is something inherently evil about the human heart. Not a popular concept, but the only thing that makes sense of the evidence. And so the common denominator, of course, is that we, as people, can explain why we have this sour side of us because we're evil. There's a part of us that's, that's messed up that inherently wants to do destructive and evil things. Now, I can already hear in your mind, you're objecting, and you're like, you have never met my Nana before, okay? My Nana is a sweetheart and practically a saint. Even your Nana is evil. <laughs> Sorry. It's true. Even your Nana. Malcolm Mugridge says, the depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time, the most intellectually resisted fact. It's obvious. Duh. Everybody has something wrong with them. Why can't we just admit it? I was listening to a political commentator this week, and he was an Orthodox Jew, and he was talking about the Holocaust, and he was saying, you know, the people who participated in it, um, they weren't any, any worse than we are. They were people who were in a different circumstance. They had a different environmental factors. They had different um, social pressures. But the same heart that is in them is in us as well. Because we look at them and we go, I could never, I could never be that. I could never do that. I could never think that. And they go, no, no, no. The heart that's in them is the heart that's in us. And so don't think that you're made of a different material or that you have a different nature than the people who you've seen do these atrocities. There's something in us that given the opportunity in the right circumstances, we would do the same thing. And so he pointed out, you know, there's something wrong with the human heart, not just wrong with that place at that time. So here's the dilemma. And Paul explains the dilemma, and he says, oh, geez, I've looked at my heart, I've looked at humanity, and we have a big problem. And so he says in Romans 7, 24, he says, who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? He realizes there is no self-help book, there is no motivational speaking, there is no try harder, willpower, that none of that is going to do it. It's just not going to happen. No human has ever done it. Who's going to rescue me from this body that is dying and a life that is decaying? He goes around the next verse and he answers his question. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He points out it's not another what that's going to fix this. It's not another what. We've gone through all the what's and continue to cycle through them. There is a new self-help book every single year and we have tried them. That's not going to help. It's not a what, it's a who. Because I can't save myself. Somebody's going to have to save me. And he points to Jesus. Now, of course, being in church, this is probably not a surprise. We go, okay, yeah, I thought Jesus would probably be the answer. I thought we'd get there. 
So let me go a little deeper. If Jesus is the who, then I want to figure out the how. And here's what Paul says, how he does this. He says in Romans 5, 19, for just, and by the way, this is going to get a little technical, okay? We're going to, but I'm going to hopefully make sense of it at the end. So if you're in this next part, you're like, Duh, I don't know. It's okay. We'll get there. Romans 5, 19, for just as through the disobedience of the one man. So he's talking here about Adam. Adam rebels against God. Sin enters into the world. Now we all have this sin nature and we have to suffer the consequences. So just as disobedience of the one man, uh, ma many were made sinners. So also through the obedience, so one person is disobedient, sin enters the world. Another person comes along and is completely obedient. That's, of course, uh, the death on the cross of the one man, Jesus. The many will be made righteous. So here's what he's saying, and he says in other verses, he says, you know, uh, one man screwed it up, one man's going to fix it. We're all born into the one man's family, Adam's family. Go ahead and chuckle. Okay, Adam's family. I know you're going to. Just get past it. Okay, good. Adam's family. Okay, good. Okay, we're all born into Adam's family, sinful nature, rebellion. He says, now we have an opportunity because of the righteous act of Christ and his obedience to death on a cross that we can enter and be baptized, is the word he uses, into a new family, into Christ's family. And so the gospel lays out these opportunities. He says, you can continue to live in Adam's family and you're going to suffer the consequences that Adam suffered. He had rebellion against God and sin entered into his life and eventually decay and death and now condemnation. You can have those things if you stay in Adam's lineage or you can have a new family. You can enter into Christ's family. You can decide to be a part of his and be an adopted son or daughter into Christ's family. And now all the things that were true of Christ are now true of you. Now you have, because Christ had a right standing with God, you have a right standing with God. All the glory and honor and praise that he deserved, now you get to have, because you have been adopted into his family. And that's really what the gospel message is about. It's about the idea that I can go from this, this family of death and decay into uh, life. And so let me see if I can make sense of all this with an analogy. Let's imagine that you and I are uh, living in the countryside, and let, let's say, to, uh, Ever After, you ever seen that movie with uh, Drew Barrymore when she's little? Okay, Ever After, no? Some of you guys are too, okay, good. Uh, Ever After, we're in the countryside, we're in this kingdom, and we have some really evil parents. In fact, these parents are so evil that every day they control every minute of our life. They tell us when to get up. They tell us when to eat. They tell us what to do. They make us work all day. We are their slaves. We do everything that they tell us that we have to do. And day in and day out, we are a slave to these evil parents. Until one day, the king of the kingdom comes up on his horse and he stops and he goes, you look pretty beaten up. You look pretty tired. Like, yeah, I feel hopeless. I'm stuck. I don't see a way out of this. And he goes, you know what? I have an opportunity for you. I want you to become my son or daughter. I will adopt you into my family. You will be a part of the royal family. All you have to do is say yes and then come live in the kingdom with me. What do you say? We would say, well, yeah, duh. Hello. Are you kidding me? Well, that's what the gospel is. The gospel is the king has come, Jesus, and he says, I want you to be a part of my family. I will adopt you as my son or daughter. You come live in the kingdom with me, and you're going to have all of the benefits of living in the kingdom or living in, in the castle. You're going to get to go from a person who has no opportunity to endless possibilities. You're going to go from no resources to uh, uh, endless resources you can have everything that the king has because you become his son or daughter. Are you in or are you out? 
Do you want to continue to be a slave or do you want to come and live uh, as, a, as a royal son or daughter? Well, yeah, of course, that, that seems pretty obvious, right? But that's not exactly it. Some of us still live as slaves. In fact, we've kind of become accustomed to it. Have you ever seen, um, okay, this is embarrassing. I'm having a prison reference here. Um, so I love prison documentaries. But people have a hard, oh, 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 rabbit trail. How much time I got? Okay. You remember um, Shawshank Redemption where the guy gets out and then he tries to get back in? Because he's so used to being in prison that he can't handle it outside. Some of us are in that mentality where we're so used to being slaves that we just can't even imagine being free. And even the taste of freedom scares us. That's why some of us say no. This is what, um, this is what Paul says. He says that all of us can be sons or daughters. Now here's the problem. And some of us have said yes some of us haven't said yes, and we need to say yes. Others of us, we've said yes, but we still feel like slaves every single day. We still feel like we're a slave to whatever that addiction or whatever that, that lust or that it just keeps pulling us back and we can't seem to be free from it. Well, if you've ever witnessed an adoption before, especially one that has taken place where a child comes from maybe a, a third world country or a really abusive family, Adoption is instantaneous, meaning the adoption process may take a little bit while, but once you get to that finish line and that parent signs the name, their name on it, that person legally becomes a part of the family. Everything that is true of that family is now true of that child. The adoption is instantaneous. The problem is, is that feeling like that child and learning to live as that child sometimes takes time. I've seen kids who have come and they've been adopted and for years they have these, these behavioral issues because they are so used to hoarding food and fighting and this abusive environment that they, it takes them a long time to start living as a free person, free from the orphanage or free from the abuse. Or, and this is what the Bible calls sanctification is the word for it, is it takes us a while to learn, oh wow, I'm free I don't have to say yes anymore. I don't have to do those things. So if we go back to our, our analogy, let's imagine that we're living in the castle, that we are officially free, but then one day we hear a knock on the door, and our old evil parents show up, and they start demanding things from us. You need to get out here. You need to clean. You need to do, and they start telling us what to do, and they start trying to make us a slave again. You know what might happen? You might actually listen, because your entire life, you've been trained to do this. This is the world that you have lived in. And so you will go and you're like, okay, okay, I'm going to get back on it. But you know what's great? You don't have to. They can knock on the door and tell you what to do. And you can say, no, you're not in charge of me anymore. You're not my master. I have a new father and he has freed me from your slavery. And so I can do what I want to do now. I can live in freedom and I don't have to listen to you. And that's exactly what some of us need to realize, is that Christ has given us the freedom, and we've still been living as slaves. That you have had the authority and the power of Christ to say no to the things that continue to enslave you. That you can say, I don't want to go there anymore. I don't want to look at that. I don't want to think about that. And I have the power. Before, I had to do it. It was a part of my nature. But now, I have a new father. I have a new family. I don't have to say yes any longer. See, one of the... Uh, one of the things that I've done for a long time, about 10 years <laughs> in youth and young adults, and I'm going to bring it here and it's going to be uh, kind of ridiculous, but when I've talked about this freedom that we have and, and sin is no longer enslaving us, I've tried to teach people to verbally say this, sin is not my master. Sin is not my master. 
Actually, in fact, you may only do it one time because you think it's so stupid, but we'll do it right now. Ready? So on the count of three, ready? One, two, three. Sin is not my master. See, you've already learned. It's already good. So imagine this. Today, you go to the grocery store, and you're checking out, and you see a magazine cover there, and you go, whoa, hey, yo, that's, she's not wearing that much. And then you yell out, sin is not my master. I guarantee it'll work. I guarantee you will no longer be tempted by that magazine anymore or have friends. But, <laughs> but I do think that there's something powerful in just declaring sin is not my master. Once I've been adopted as a son or daughter of God, I no longer have to say yes to the things that enslaved me. I have now been freed. And so I get to say, in the face of temptation, sin is not my master. I have authority and power to say no. Let's pray. Lord God, we are, uh, we're so thankful for the power that you have given us as your sons and daughters. Some of us, we need to make that decision to stop living in slavery. Um, we have lived in it for so long, and it has become our master, and we are enslaved to it. And maybe because we have never given our lives over to you and lived as your sons and daughters, and so today we need to do that. Some of us have been living in, slave, uh, in slavery, and we just don't have to. We can say no when it calls. When sin calls, we can say, you are not my master. And so, Lord God, I pray that as we walk out of here, we would experience a new freedom from the things that are trying to enslave us, because you have given us power and authority to say no to those things. Lord, we love you. We thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.